Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganaria and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Wolf's Footprint, Indian Naturalism. When you are trying to persuade somebody of something, it's usually a mistake to be too insistent. It makes interlocutors dig in their heels, since it's just human nature to greet confident certainty with stubborn skepticism. Thus, it was all but guaranteed that the Brahminical schools of ancient India would provoke disagreement. By insisting so emphatically on the truth of the Vedas, on their indispensability as we travel the path to wisdom and liberation, these thinkers invited contradiction and criticism. It came above all from the Buddhists and the Jains, to whom we'll be turning soon. First, though, we want to look at an even more radical response, a school of thought that used the sutra and commentary form of writing that has become so familiar to us from the Brahminical schools, but in order to reject everything held dear by the philosophers of those schools. This school was equally inimical to the beliefs of Buddhists and Jains, making them the true outsiders of classical Indian thought, champions of a philosophy and way of life grounded firmly within this world. Called Charvaka, or Lokayata, the school took its cue from the early materialist ideas already circulating around the time of the Buddha. The key text of the tradition is ascribed to a man named Brihaspati, and is called, of course, the Charvaka Sutra. It is unfortunately lost, but can be reconstructed to some extent thanks to quotations found in angry rivals. Evidence of later Charvaka thinkers and of verses encapsulating the Charvaka teaching are also transmitted only indirectly. Indeed, of all the traditions we have examined so far, Charvaka is by far the least well-preserved in surviving texts precisely because of its irreverence. Yet, it was still known in 16th century India, when it was explained to the great Mughal emperor Akbar that the Charvakas regard paradise as a state in which man lives as he chooses, free from the control of another, and hell, the state in which he lives subject to another's rule. They admit only of such disciplines as tend to the promotion of external order, that is, a knowledge of just administration and benevolent government. By sheer chance, the same thought was put forward by the early 1970s soul group, the Undisputed Truth, who sang, You make your own heaven and hell right here on earth. The Charvakas thus disputed the truths of both Vedic ritual practice and the ascetic Shramana movements, which promised that favorable deeds will be rewarded with good fruits in either this life, in another world, or during a further incarnation in this world. Rihaspati dismisses all this, stating bluntly in two consecutive sutras that religious acts are not to be performed and that religion's instructions are not to be relied upon. The Charvaka verses are even more forthright. There is no heaven, no final liberation, nor any soul in another world, nor do the actions of the four castes, orders, and so on produce any real effect. Brihaspati says, the fire ritual, the three Vedas, the ascetics, three staves, and smearing oneself with ashes, all these are the livelihood of those destitute of knowledge and manliness. Brihaspati is an equal opportunity offender, ridiculing both the Vedic believer and the Buddhist or Jain ascetic. Other Charvaka verses likewise take aim at both targets, mocking first the Brahmins, 
If beings in heaven are gratified by our offering here, then why not give food down below to those who are standing on the housetop? And then, mocking the Shramana movements, the Jain, the Buddhist, dimwit, given to practicing physical hardship, who has taught you this way of leading life? Prihaspati was not the first to make such unpopular statements. Ajita Kesakambala, a rough contemporary of the Buddha, said that, There is no consequence to almsgiving, sacrifice, or oblation. A good or bad action produces no result. As we'll see in the next episode, Ajita also held that a human being has no self or soul that can survive bodily death. On the strength of these teachings, Charvaka expert Ramkrishna Bhattacharya has credited Ajita with being the originator of materialism in India. In a typical instance of the way that the views of such philosophers have been inaccurately transmitted by their opponents, we are also told that Ajita denied the reality of both this world and the other world. This makes him sound like a radical skeptic or nihilist, but in fact he probably said only that we are guaranteed no future fruits from our actions in either this or the next world. In place of the unfounded promises of the Vedas, the Buddha, or Mahavira, the advice of Ajita and the later Charvakas is to look solely to the evident and immediate consequences of what we do. So, what guidelines do these naturalists offer in evaluating the consequences of actions? The reports of their rivals suggest that, having rejected both Vedic and ascetic practices, and given up on any prospect of a life after death, the Charvaka school could do no better than to embrace crass hedonism. Indeed, the very name Charvaka may relate to the word charu, meaning pleasant, though an alternative etymology connects it to charva, or chew, because the Charvaka thinker is one who chews, or destroys, the self. An alternate designation of the school, Lokayata, suggests the same ethical orientation, since it means this-worldly. In keeping with this, one of the Charvaka verses states, While life remains, let a man live happily, nothing is beyond death. The Jain author, Hemachandra, a staunch enemy of the Charvakas, represents their teaching with the following picturesque analogy, Abandoning pleasures in this world and striving for them in the next world is like licking the elbow, leaving what is to be licked in the hand. But, like someone licking up the last drops of a margarita, we should take this with a grain of salt. An instructive comparison may be drawn with the ancient Greek Epicureans, a school that was likewise excoriated for its supposed hedonist excesses. Now, the Epicureans actually were hedonists. They taught that pleasure is the highest good, but they were certainly not in favor of debauched, unrestrained pleasure-seeking, or even the more refined search for enjoyment evoked by the word Epicurean in modern English. To the contrary, Epicurus held that the highest pleasure consists simply in the absence of pain, and that one can best achieve this by training oneself to have minimal desires. In the case of the Charvakas, the hedonist interpretation may be even more misleading. Our best collection of the fragments of the Charvaka Sutra makes no mention of pleasure, and other critics failed to confirm Hemachandra's portrayal of Charvaka ethics. It is hard to believe that they would have missed such a golden opportunity. In fact, a standard complaint about the Charvakas is that they have no positive teaching at all, something you would hardly say about a school committed to forthright hedonism. 
More likely, Charvaka simply did not bother challenging the basic premise of Vedic ritualism, namely that we want concrete rewards for our actions. Their criticism was that rituals are no way to reap such rewards. If you want fruits, harvest them here and now. From what we have seen so far, Charvaka philosophy consisted largely in a forthright rejection of other teachings, but without much in the way of detailed argument. This too is misleading, though. On at least two central topics of Indian philosophy, these materialists made significant contributions. One of them is the theory of the self or soul, and we'll be looking at this next time. The other is epistemology, in particular the reliability of inference. We saw that the Nyaya school, among others, recognized inference as a source of knowledge or pramana. You may recall our example of inferring the presence of a tiger in the trees after hearing its growl. Again, Charvaka adopts a critical response to this theory, but again, because of the problematic nature of the evidence on their teaching, it is not clear just how radical that critical response was. What is certain is that they were happy with the first source of knowledge admitted by the Nyaya school, namely sense perception. The trickier question is whether they reject the use of inferences based on sense perception or accept them under certain circumstances. It's clear that later commentators in the Charvaka tradition adopted the latter view. One of these commentators, named Purandara, is reported as saying that the Charvakas accept inference, although they object to anyone employing inference beyond the limits of perceptual experience. Some scholars believe that this represents a softening of an original extreme empiricism put forth by Brihaspati in the Charvaka Sutra, according to which only sense perception can give us knowledge. They might have made this move to render their school's teaching more competitive with the sophisticated epistemologists of other traditions. But the balance of evidence suggests that Brihaspati was already willing to admit the validity of what we might call everyday inference. Here is what he says. Perception indeed is the means of right knowledge. Since the means of right knowledge is to be non-secondary, it is difficult to ascertain an object by means of inference. There is no means of knowledge for determining the other world. One could certainly take this to mean that sensation and sensation alone is a pramana, and indeed, the Charvakas were sometimes called Pramanai Kavadens, meaning those who accept only one Pramana. In this compressed sequence of sutras, Brihaspati even gives us something like an argument for this restriction of knowledge to the realm of perception. It alone is primary, whereas inference, or for that matter testimony, would be secondary. If you hear a tiger sound, you can be sure that there is a tiger sound because you are immediately aware of it, but as we noted in an earlier episode, Inferring on this basis that there is really a tiger, or accepting testimony from someone else, falls below the standard of certainty. Nonetheless, it might be perfectly acceptable to form beliefs in this way. Perhaps you don't particularly mind about being certain. Or perhaps you can use sense perception to double-check the belief in question. This is what happens in everyday life, as when you believe that eating rice will eliminate hunger because it has done so in the past. You can satisfy any doubt you might have on the score right along with satisfying the hunger by just eating some rice. The problem, as Brihaspati's remarks suggest, is whether such inferences can be drawn on such topics as the other world or the existence of an incorporeal self. These are, of course, precisely the sorts of inference that Nyaya and other Vedic schools wanted to make. 
ultimately their epistemology was in the service of arguing for the self, liberation, and so on. And these are also precisely the inferences that Charvaka is committed to refuting. Here we are dealing with highly controversial claims, and there is no possibility of checking the claims using sense perception. After all, it's not like we can go now to the other world just to see whether it is really there. Extrapolating a bit, we could imagine that Charvaka would even be happy with the sorts of inference made in scientific explanations of natural phenomena. After all, these explanations are hypotheses that can indeed be checked against empirical evidence. The point is made in the Charvaka verses, which ask, who will deny the validity of inference when one infers fire from smoke and so on? For even ordinary people ascertain what is to be proven by such inferences, though they may not be pestered by the logicians. However, inferences that seek to prove a self, God, an omniscient being, the other world, and so on, are not considered valid by those who know the real nature of things. To this, the verses add the traditional refrain of the down-to-earth common-sense philosopher, namely that everyday people will do just fine making inferences so long as their mind is not vitiated by cunning logicians. There is a beautiful anecdote that makes the Charvaka's point better than we ever could, the parable of the wolf's footprints. Related by several authors, it tells of a married couple, the husband a materialist and the wife a devout believer in Brahminical teaching. He is unable to convince her by argument and comes up with a different approach. When no one is watching, he uses his fingers to make marks in the dust of a crossroads, mimicking the footprints of a wolf. When the marks are discovered, the local scholars agree that these marks can only be explained by a wolf that has come into the village out of the forest. The husband triumphantly tells his wife to consider the case of these footprints of the wolf. We're lucky to have this detailed version of the story, since it explains an otherwise incomprehensible Charvaka verse, which compares the teachings of learned scholars to saying, look at the footprint of the wolf. Now, it may seem that the parable is a caution against using everyday inference. After all, wolves are not imperceptible, like the other world or an immaterial self, and concluding from apparent wolf footprints that a wolf is about is hardly an example of exotic philosophical reasoning. This impression might be confirmed by the verse just mentioned, which prefaces the remark about the footprint by saying, man consists of only as much as is within the scope of the senses. But a 14th century author named Somatilaka, who transmits one of the more complete versions of the story, emphasizes the fact that the villagers duped by the husband include the self-styled scholars, who solemnly inform the rest of the people that a wolf must be about. He says, these people, knaves in the garb of the pious, deceive normal folk by somehow convincing them of the infallibility of certain inferences and verbal testimonies, enticing them away with the hope of enjoying pleasures to be attained after reaching heaven, and produce blind faith in pious acts. So, at least on this interpretation, the parable is not intended to induce a wide-ranging skepticism about all inference, it is meant to cast doubt on the misleading promises made by the learned men of the Vedic tradition. Our puzzle about the scope and nature of the Charvaka epistemological critique echoes another feature of Hellenistic philosophy, in this case having to do, unsurprisingly, with these skeptics. Before explaining the parallel, we hasten to say that the Charvaka school is clearly not skeptical, at least not in the way that the ancient Greek skeptics were. After all, they accept one authoritative pramana, or source of knowledge, namely sense perception. 
In this respect, their epistemology fits better with the aforementioned Epicureans, who likewise grounded all knowledge in sensation. But just as it is controversial how to take the Charvaka criticism of inferences that go beyond perception, so it is controversial how to understand the Hellenistic skeptics' attitude towards belief in general. On one reading, they withheld their endorsement or assent from all beliefs. On another reading, they suspended judgment only concerning the more abstruse and technical claims made by the dogmatic schools. On the reading we've been defending, Charvaka would line up with the second interpretation of the Hellenistic skeptics. They were happy to accept everyday inferences, but not the more ambitious and contentious inferences made by their Vedic and Shramana rivals. Having said this, there is actually a more fundamental difference between Charvaka and Greek skepticism, at least in the form defended by the late ancient thinker Sextus Empiricus. As we've just said, his skepticism manifested as a suspension of judgment, concerning, at the very least, philosophical doctrines and maybe all possible topics of belief. But it's abundantly clear from our evidence that Charvaka did not suspend judgment about the fruits of ritual or the existence of a self independent from the body. They judged all right, and very harshly, they thought all of it was bunk. But on what basis? To say that there is no watertight inference or testimony to establish the truth of these things is far from establishing that they are false. This would be like seeing a mark in the dust that looks like a wolf's footprint, realizing it could in theory have been made by a husband trying to score a point in a marital dispute, and leaping to the conclusion that the mark was definitely not made by a wolf. To put the point more abstractly, it seems that for the Chadwakas, if there is no definite proof of something, then it should be taken not to exist, and that seems like a crass philosophical error. At least two sorts of response might be made on the Chadwaka's behalf. One is that, in the case of something like the other world, or the independent self, proof is unavailable in principle. This is not like the wolf, who may or may not have made a footprint. In that case, we can use sense perception to track it down and verify its existence. By contrast, another world, reached only after death, would be completely inaccessible to sense perception, the source of all our knowledge. And it does make a certain amount of sense to reject belief in things that are in principle unknowable, that are simply beyond our ken. After all, there could not possibly be any evidence for them. A stringent skeptic like Sextus Empiricus would still say that this falls short of giving us grounds to reject the existence of such things, that would be an example of what he called negative dogmatism, whereas the truly skeptical response is to refuse to make any judgment one way or another. But the lack of evidence, even of the possibility of evidence, may have been enough for Brihaspati. It might be enough for us too. The other response that the Charvakas could make would be to devise a rival philosophical theory. And in the case of the self, this is precisely what they do. Not content with observing that the case for an independent, immortal self is unproven, they offer an innovative theory of the mind, with startling similarity to ideas current in modern-day philosophy. If you're hungry like the wolf to hear all about it, you'll just have to join us next time, here on The History of Philosophy in India. Allah.